0: I'm Janet Forrest, and this is the Nantucket Athenaeum Podcast. In this season of the podcast, my colleague James Greeter and I are going to take you on a journey through time. You'll find out about the faces and frivolities that graced, or maybe disgraced, the stage of the Great Hall. You'll meet musicians, lecturers, and illusionists, some of repute, and some, well, not. Not were these folks that made the long 30-mile trek to Nantucket, and how were they received by the Islanders? Welcome to to Tonight in Athenaeum Hall. This is Episode 3, Impresarios of the Stage. On Tuesday, April fourteenth, 1840, the following advertisement appeared in the Islander.
1: At the Athenaeum for this night only. Signor Blitz, the greatest and most amusing professor of physical, experimental, wonderful, surprising, philosophical, and incomprehensible thaumaturgic, has the honor to announce to the ladies and gentlemen of Nantucket and its vicinity that by particular request of several families, he will give his amusements as above stated this evening. And he hopes from the unqualified approbation bestowed on his entertainments in 22 states of the union, to receive the support of the citizens of Nantucket.
0: James, tell me what we're going to be talking about today.
1: Today, we're going to talk about impresarios of the stage who've appeared at the Athenaeum. I think about, think of the music man coming to town and bringing with him a lot of excitement about uh, his performance because it was something different and new in the small town, And that's the kind of performer we're gonna be talking about today. And it really all starts with a a fellow named Yankee Hill. His name was George Handel Hill. Uh, He was an American actor born in Boston. He took to the stage as what was called a personator. He would perform as a character on stage that would sort of typify what was seen as, for example, the typical Yankee, hence his nickname, Yankee Hill. he became associated with that particular stock character. Um, in fact, so much and so ingrained did that character become in uh, the, sort of the American iconography that his character was actually sort of the the origin of Uncle Sam, of that image of the man with the striped pants and the blue swallowtail coat. He actually appears on a flower tin at one point. So he he really captured the American imagination in the 1840s. He would travel all over the country, He really culminated with his career around the Civil War. He was here on Nantucket about a decade or so before that. The image that he portrayed was of a stock character called Brother Jonathan, uh, who would wear, as I mentioned before, these tight-striped trousers, very bright waistcoat, an old-fashioned coat, like a swallowtail coat with large buttons and uh, very large boots. And we've seen in advertising everywhere. It was on tobacco tins. He was kind of a transatlantic cousin of John Bull, the, the English character, who was sort of seen as the typical male citizen of the country, the man of the street. Yankee Hill typified or personified what we came to see later on in uh, Mark Twain's The Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. He's simple in the sense that he's unaffected in his character, but he had a a cunning or cleverness to him, especially when it came to sniffing out a good deal, that he would always get the better over on these people that he was being looked down upon by who were of a different class. And he, he always would come out on top as a result of this. And so he would travel around the country and put on these various characters, and Yankee Hill was the most popular of those characters that he would portray.
0: And what was it about that time or what was going on in the country that, that drew people to him?
1: At that time, uh, Americans were really looking to understand their own character as a nation. We were we were trying to forge our own identity, the 1840s, 1850s, and we were starting to really feel confident as a nation, but we didn't know how to express that in some ways. And so these were people that were searching for a way to epitomize what they were seeing every day on the street. And sort of bring that to a wider audience going abroad later on to perform in the UK and elsewhere, and really give people a sense of what the man on the street, the average Yankee might be. Now, of course, at that time, it applied to all of the colonies, not just sort of regionally New England or so, sort of that kind of thing. He really paved the way for a lot of other performers we're going to talk about in a little bit who would sort of enlarge on just simply that stock character representation by adding either additional acts or skills or performances or other characters and also do it much more quickly. So whereas Yankee Hill would you know, portray the Yankee in a little sketch that might go on for some time with other characters that he'd be engaging with, some of the other performers just simply performed by themselves on stage. And here I'm thinking in particular of a fellow named Dr. Valentine, who was famous for his comic Metamorphoses he would sit in a little booth and had a variety of disguises that he would put on while he was also performing, uh, lectures, comic songs, Again, providing that kind of homespun kind of wisdom at the same time. He would play a variety of characters and he would switch between those ducking down to the side or drawing the little curtain. I'm not exactly sure how the mechanism worked, but there's a picture, a great picture of him in his booth with the curtain kind of like a like a little swag on either side of him. And some of his characters today would be considered fairly offensive because of course they would involve some kind of blackface, but he would also do sort of the Irishman, the Dutchman, Dr. Valentine got his start with P.T. Barnum when variety theater was really just sort of becoming a thing in 1842, 1843, where there would be a series of variety sketch, comedy sketches, songs, dance, acrobatics, magic acts, that kind of thing, and a relatively small group of Headline artists were sort of the mainstay of the repertoire, and they would specialize in these representations of people from different classes. So the the reason William Valentine was particularly popular with Barnum is that Dr. Valentine would stand at the entrance to the museum, and he would study the the characters of the visitors that were coming in. And based upon that, uh, he would sort of change his his act. He would always panic, apparently, if he thought they were country bumpkins who wouldn't respond to the diversity of his repertoire but he also drew from the people that he saw coming in. So as I said, he had this table, a little shelf, he had hooks on there with caps and wigs and mustaches, shirt collars, and you really could only see him from the waist up. And he would address the audience, seated behind this table, and then state his intention, just like you're told not to do today. I'm gonna do an impression of Jack Nicholson. Like if you have to tell people, maybe it's not a great impression. But at the same time, this is all brand new for the the audiences that were seeing this. And so he would do different characters, uh, both male and female, including the Yankee Tin Peddler, Tabitha Twist, who was a young maiden, Sam Slick Jr., a precocious author, a man named Mr. Sauerkraut. You you saw the pictures I sent you. (laughs) Mr. Mr. Sauerkraut looks like he would be named Mr. Sauerkraut. There's Jemima Doolittle, who was a widowed woman, and also Seth Stokes, one of his most popular characters, who was kind of like the 19th century version of Night at the Roxbury. He thought that he was, (laughs) his character thought he really understood women and what they wanted, and in the portrayal would show that he knew absolutely nothing about women or what they wanted.
0: You mentioned that when people were coming in, he was observing the audience because he was trying to customize his act. Yes. Was the point to kind of hold up a mirror and show these people kind of who they are so they can laugh together and it was all in good fun or was he more of an insult comic and he was kind of making fun of the people?
1: I don't get a sense that he was making fun of them. I think it was an honest attempt To represent it, I think it feels more like he was, or at least my impression is he was more like not a journalist, but a a journalist in the sense of journaling about American culture and people that he met. And so he just, by studying the audience, he was trying to keep current with what he was seeing as a rapidly changing social environment with different groups and people coming to the fore and trying to find a way to connect to the audience. I don't get the impression that there was any mean-spiritedness to it. That seems to be more of a 20th century thing from what I've seen there They were very earnest, even while they were doing very horrible things, it seems like. (laughs) uh, That sense of irony wasn't quite there until, uh, I think, a little bit later on. At least that was my impression. Which is not to say that there weren't some things that today, in retrospect, seem very mean-spirited. And one of the lists you can see, and you can peruse all these things uh, online, were different characters or situations that would be considered, whether there would be um, sort of a sexist approach to something, clearly racist was obviously an issue at the time or at least is now for us whereas when they were performing these things they would think nothing of performing in blackface and that was a very popular form of entertainment at the time so though in retrospect it seems like it is a bit cruel what they were doing at the time i think it was perceived as being hey look at this this new nation that we have here, all these different characters. Some of them, they're meant to be poked fun at, like Mr. Sauerkraut. And I think he makes it very explicit, kind of like um, Charles Dickens does with his characters. When you read the name, you have a good sense of what that character is all about. Dr. Valentine would sometimes perform with a fellow named Senior Blitz. Both here on Nantucket, where they did appear on stage together, but also further afield. And Senior Blitz was very popular throughout the country. He was known for, in particular, catching a bullet in his hands, which he did eventually have to give up for being too dangerous.
0: Did he actually catch a bullet in his hands or was it stagecraft?
1: Well, I mean, the way that I always understood that trick is you always you have palmed a bullet and then the gun is a blank is fired and then you grab it. So whether or not he just simply said, he didn't want to do it anymore because it was too dangerous or he just got sick of doing it. And that was the the excuse that he gave, because I agree. If, if if they were shooting a bullet at him, that would be very dangerous. Uh, And I'm not sure how the physics of that would work.
0: I can see both sides because you think back to when they used to, I guess some places still do throw knives, that sort of thing. They did very silly, dangerous, wildly dangerous things. So I don't think, performers would be past doing that i'm just curious if it was possible but they also were quite skilled at stagecraft and the audience perhaps was a little bit more gullible than
1: right and whereas where today we have all of these sort of behind the scenes like pen and teller they sort of show you how the trick was done especially if, if it's the first time anybody has ever done that trick wow that guy just caught a bullet <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah. like holy cow you got to see that it's amazing so yeah I, but like you're saying i think they're it really could go either way. Either it was stagecraft, or they just had horrible health and safety regulations at the day in the day, and took a lot more chances than an insurance <laughs> company would allow us to do today at the Athenaeum, for example. He's a was a funny looking little man. Uh, <laughs> I say that as one myself. You're definitely drawn to him when you see him. He's a very distinct look. Uh, he was born over in England in 1810. His name was Antonio Van Zant. We think, not really sure because we don't have any birth records, but we do know that he began performing on stage at the age of 13 in Germany as Senior Blitz. He would advertise that he was not, in fact, British, but that he was Moravian, he was from Germany, because he found he could get more work in England as a foreigner. So again, just kind of part of the image. So he traveled around first to the UK, then he went a further field to Northern Europe, Ireland and Scotland before coming to the US in 1834. and Performed in New York City, traveled around North America, before eventually settling in Philadelphia, where he lived until he passed away in 1877. But as I said, he came to Nantucket on a number of occasions. It was very popular here. There are stories in the paper of kids trying to do some of the sleight of hand tricks, and they're you know they're out on the street. They're doing it with uh, like a piece of paper or something, and they're dropping it. And they can't. They don't know how this, all the steps are. But the the adults got a kick out of the kids trying to imitate this famous magician. He was also known as a ventriloquist. He really liked using that skill to cause a bit of mischief, I guess you could say, while he was on the road. For example, he once made a bunch of people at a train station think there was a boy in a big cello case that was trapped inside there and couldn't get out. And he really amused himself, I guess, while he was waiting for the train by by fooling all of all these people who were in great consternation for this child. They opened the case up and it was empty. They had no idea what to do with that, you know, again, because ventriloquism was brand new at least as a, an entertainment. And he was very popular for many, many years across the country. He was well known for making things like omelets appear and hats. He would produce canary birds from watch cases, rabbits from waistcoat pockets, butterflies from eggshells. He even had some trained birds, trained canaries, one of which he could make play dead on command. Whenever he was, it was known that he was coming to Nantucket, people would get very excited about that. And in fact, his reputation here became such that it formed the basis of an anecdote from his autobiography. When he was writing about visiting Nantucket, back in the day, he stopped at the Pacific Bank at the top of Main Street, and there he asked an elderly Quaker gentleman to be wanted to cash a check basically for $300. Well, here's this funny little man with two big tufts of hair on his head, coming into the bank, he probably barely reached the counter, and the man is, Looking down on him, very tall and gaunt and serious-looking, and he says, um, as he's noticing as as Blitz is filling it out, he's signing the, the check, Senior Blitz, which presumably would be bank fraud today, but at the time <laughs> that was what he was known as. And the gentleman in the bank saw this and was very excited. Your Senior Blitz, really, Are you see, really Senior Blitz. And of course, Blitz took that opportunity then to show him that he in fact was a magician, he performed. Some feats that so surprised this poor banker gentleman that he turned to his assistant and said, hey, get all the money back in the vault. This guy is, you know, this guy's trouble, basically. He just really thought that that Blitz could just reach behind the counter from where he was on the other side and take all this money. And who knows? Maybe he could have. Maybe he was that good. I guess a lot of the people in the bank at the time got quite a chuckle out of it because they probably had been to his show and knew what he was up to. The older Quaker gentleman, maybe not the type that would attend a magic show at the Asinam at the time, so it wasn't really sort of up on the act, as it were. And when he died in 1877, his obituaries ran in newspapers throughout the country. He was just so well known. He was sort of the best known of the magicians that came here and performed. And there were a couple of others who achieved also great fame abroad and here as well. For example... The other character was Jonathan Harrington, who was one of the earliest American magicians. He was born in Boston, so he was locally grown and raised, began performing as a ventriloquist, then added different acts to his repertoire, including fire resistance, conjuring, and exhibitions. And his shows became increasingly focused on magic, with some ventriloquism and mimicry mixed in with that. He was described as a professor of ventriloquism and natural magic. He performed throughout the 1830s and the 1840s in Boston at the Lowell Museum, which was a theater, even though it's called the museum, they had different names. Theater was a bad word in the 1840s and 50s. Have you ever heard of the Astor Place Riot?
0: I have. I read a whole book about it.
1: Okay. So, you know, they had this reputation as kind of lawless places. And some of them, like the Bowery Street Theater, were you'd have people up on stage with the performers, like gambling and drinking and just hanging out.
0: Yeah, and just for the listeners who aren't familiar with it, the Astor Place Riot was, there was a theater, and correct me if I got any of this wrong, they were doing Shakespeare, and there were the two premier Shakespearean actors, and one was British, and one was American, and it was sort of like a... a, a dance off between these two, <laughs> a very violent dance off. And finally, the fans of either got out of control. And I do believe that's how the New York City Police Department was a police force was originally founded after the Astor riots.
1: it was a big It was a big deal. It was a really big deal. And it lasted for a day or two, I think, as well. Yeah. so it was a big moment in New York history. and sort of theaters in general had this reputation of. Being a place you would not bring the family.
0: It wasn't people getting dressed up in tuxes and it was like a brawl. It was a bar. It was mayhem.
1: It it must've been complete chaos and it must've been (laughs) hard to hear the actors (laughs) amidst all of that, the noise going on. There are some amazing engravings that I've seen of, of just the the chaos that was on stage at that time, which is why some places would be called, they would name them the Athenaeum, even though it wasn't necessarily a library. Or they would call it the public garden, even though it wasn't actually a garden, but it was a way to uh, euphemize this place that, so that families could go, that it was a more appropriate venue to go and be entertained. So he, he did really well, uh, this uh, Jonathan Harrington, to the point where he was able to buy his own theater, the New England Museum. Again, not a theater, called a theater, uh, where he presented shows and exhibitions, including The Burning of Moscow which we're going to talk about later uh, with the panoramas, but eventually tired of that. He sold the museum, went back on the road, performing throughout New England with additional trips to Philadelphia and other places around the country. Signed on with P.T. Barnum for a while again. P.T. Barnum drew a lot of these types of people to his venues because it was a great place to put on a performance and make your name. As he became, uh, as he aged, he became known as Old Harrington, which is a heck of a thing to be called. (laughs) When there's no young Harrington in the offing, it's just me, just Harrington. And again, when he passed away, these were like senior blitz. These were national celebrities who were bringing something entirely new, this new experience to the stage for everyday Americans who'd never experienced anything like this before. And one of the, the common complaints in the paper is how many people come to these events and how few come to the lectures. (laughs) <laughs> which they, which I think would be better for people to attend, you know, more informative right. educational.
0: Right, right, right. Not much has changed.
1: It, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> you probably had some experience with that yeah. in your day. <laughs> the last one I would mention is a, a man named Andrew McAllister. He was uh, on Nantucket in 1853, performing at the Athenaeum. He trained with a magician in France. Named Philippe Talon. Philippe was at a small wooden theater in Glasgow. While he was performing there, he met a young bricklayer, Andrew McAllister, who had a natural genius for making models and creating intricate tricks. And he became Philippe's apprentice, known as Domingo. Unfortunately, wearing blackface makeup in retrospect. But again, at the time, this was sort of a stock character that was seen performing on stage. Eventually, though, he broke out and became his own magician and he claims to have invented the bottle trick, the inexhaustible bottle trick, in which he was able to pour 22 different kinds of liquor from one bottle, which must have astounded the audience who'd never seen like a soda machine at McDonald's before. You know, we just see that as sort of a natural, well, maybe not natural, but an easily explained phenomenon. This must have astounded them. And again, it was done with a series of tubes and so forth so that he was able to, to create this illusion of uh, pouring all these different liquors. But he also had, um, he created Harlequin Automata, which is essentially a ventriloquist dummy that would move independently of him holding it. And he would speak to it and ask it, ask questions and so forth. And he had uh, the most amazing costume. The other folks, we see them, they're, they're kind of in a, like a frock coat or very looking very 19th century. As you can see from some of the photos that I included there, he really went all in with the, with the uh, performances, with the costumes. There's a you know a photo of him in these large robes in front of these smoking braziers, and he's performing, he's pulling rabbits out of the hat or whatever. His costume was kind of a combination of those worn by his mentors, other magicians that he'd met. He created this sort of phantasmagorical look about him that really stood out from the other people who were on stage at the time.
0: It must have been really fascinating for an audience member. Even if you can kind of see through the trick and see what they're doing, it's still something you've never seen before. Like, you've never seen any kind of performance like it. You know, regardless of how sophisticated as it, it is and some of it was, it just must have been fascinating and so magical. Like, odd choice of words, but like really <sighs> magical to see something you'd really never seen before.
1: Absolutely. Um, and at a time when I think in a lot of people's minds these different ways of understanding the world or the or the universe were not clearly delineated or you know debunked or categorized and so maybe mesmerism does work and maybe you know maybe magic is real maybe we're we're using steam to create all of these different effects science and magic were so sort of close in terms of their ability to transform the world apparently that it might have been uh even more of a of a shock and more of a, a something that you would take to heart because you're what you're seeing is something that is literally magic whereas we understand it today we understand it sleight of hand or something else but as you as you said it was a magical experience in the true sense of the word just as it would be to see a steam engine for the first time if you've never heard of a steam engine before and just kind of lump them all together as being this new wonder of the world would take decades for all of these things to kind of shake themselves out, establish which was illusion and which was.
0: How did the audiences of the Athenaeum respond to this? Senior Blitz came back several times, so he must have had a lively audience. Was there any contention or any controversy over people enjoying this or wanting to go to this?
1: Not in the sense that there was any kind of religious uh, objection to it necessarily, at least that I've seen. I think that at the time, Nantucket was fairly cosmopolitan in some ways, even though it was also very sheltered in other ways. But it was a city on the sea. There were people coming from all over the world. It was not controversial, but it was remarkable when they would perform on stage. People, had again, never seen anything like that before. And it was their first time experiencing this and in a way that was so immediate you know, we're oftentimes these days limited by the vi- the video screen that we're looking at. Live performance is a, obviously a very different experience in general, but with Magic in particular, where, oh, you know, you might think, oh, they stopped the video, they, they moved something. When you see it in front of your eyes, that coin disappears or whatever it is, it does, even today for me, it still has that feeling of like, like even though I know he's, what he's done with it, it still gets you that first that first moment, I think. <laughs> All of them kind of were working with completely new material and just feeling their way through all of this. And so you would see a lot of overlap between the various disciplines that have evolved over time. and they were just trying to see whatever worked basically to get their their audience to react and get them to come back and put people in the seats. It was a novel experience for a lot of Americans who, had never seen anything like this before i know i keep going back to that but i think it's important to under to to emphasize that what we now see is like oh this is the guy that shows up at my kid's birthday party and dies balloon animals that there was a time when these were kind of like rock stars and they were seen as being on par with the athletes today or or authors or movie stars or things of that sort and were known around the world and when they when they left the stage, as it were, people acknowledged that passing, and they they were glad they'd had a chance to see them in person.
0: This has been a production of the Nantucket Athenaeum. It was hosted and edited by me, Janet Forrest. Special thanks to Reference Library Associate James Greeter for his knowledge and research. The opening announcement was voiced by Andrew Cromartie. Please check the show notes for more information and references. You can find all the previous episodes of this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. Please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. If you have an idea for what we should talk about next, send us an email at jforest at The Nantucket Athenaeum is located at 1 India Street in Nantucket, Massachusetts. We would love for you to stop by. You can find us online at nantucketathenaeum.org or search at Nantucket Athenaeum on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening. And if you love this episode, share it with a friend.